Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan China. So last week I was hunting in my spam folder stressed out because I couldn't find a boarding pass. And lo and behold, I come across five letters from listeners who submitted notes through my personal website. My elation, however, was only tempered by the realization that my spam deletes messages every 30 days. So now I feel like a terrible person for not responding to everyone who sent me a message before February. I fixed the spam issue, but see my LinkedIn or Twitter in the show notes if you want to reach out. I will give you a twice as long response as I would have otherwise. Also, please sign up to the newsletter. It's interesting. I promise. ChinaEconTalk.substack.com. So this week, we have Chris Bedore, former analyst at the Eurasia Group, full disclosure, my former employer, and currently a Reuters Breaking Views columnist swinging through Beijing this week to cover the two sessions, China's annual legislative meeting. So let's kick it off this episode with some great Xinhua News rap propaganda. So Chris, why are you even on this show again? I feel like that guy did a pretty solid job of letting us know what's uh, what's going on this week in Beijing. Uh, well, first I have to clarify right off the bat that talking in a totally personal capacity. So um, my views are certainly, they're my own. They don't reflect anything on my my employer. But that kind of caveat out of the way, that was pretty persuasive. But uh, I am here to cover the National People's Congress. It's China's annual parliamentary session. It happens for about 10 to 14 days, thereabouts, uh, every year. It's a big deal for people in the media industry like myself. So came up from my usual base in Hong Kong to to cover it. So what are the two sessions, Chris? I mean, it's in, in the nutshell, it's the NPC, the National People's Congress, and the CPPCC, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Well done. <laughs> right. And the, I mean, the NPC is the more important of the two. The NPC passes laws. That's, I mean, it's a lawmaking body. For uh, the media industry, it's sort of interesting because you do get a lot of public press conferences. So they're kind of scattered throughout the week or two that this goes on. And, um, you know, they're largely scripted affairs, but you can kind of ask some questions at the margins. So folks like myself like to go to these to both hear what the delegates are saying and thinking and to sometimes ask questions. So let's talk a little bit about who are the actual members of these legislative bodies. Yeah. So well, I'll give you a specific example. So yesterday I was at the Hainan Provincial NPC delegation. So in addition to the big kind of national body, a lot of the provincial delegations will will have their own sessions and the media can come and attend them and so forth. So you kind of got in, in these things, how they're set up is you got kind of one big guy, head honcho. So in Hainan's case, it was a guy named Xiao Jie, who's a former finance minister. And then you have folks who represent different constituencies in the province. So you got a guy from private enterprise. You got a few folks from ethnic minority groups and so forth. And they'll all kind of during these sessions, they all give their quick little speech. Um, and then they open the floor to questions. So, so was it inspiring? Are you now spending your next vacation in Hainan? <laughs> well, they did talk a lot about developing the tourism industry. You know, I just spent a week there uh, at the end of January getting my open water license for uh, – for not snorkeling, for uh, for scuba diving. And, How you know, was it? it? You know, what, what the issue was the coach – 
when I talked to the person on the phone, he had like pretty standard Putonghua. But when I got there, the guy was a Guangdongren. So, uh. you know, I was fine when he's doing the the talk outside the water, doing like the class or whatever. But when we're in the water and it's like I'm uncomfortable and he's like screaming at me with this strong accent about like how I'm going to kill myself because I'm breathing through the wrong tube or whatever. It was a stressful thing. And I got to say, like, I'm sure there's better scuba diving in the world than off the coast of uh, off the coast of. I, I can imagine there probably is. Yeah. <laughs> Any Hainan stories? I don't know. No, no, no Hainan <laughs> stories for me. Um, just just a lot of focus on, I mean, I think what a lot of the foreign media were interested in for Hainan would be Hainan Airlines mm. and h H&A Group in particular, which they didn't really comment on, at least during the period that I was there. So, yeah, that's, I mean, sometimes you go to these things kind of hoping for that they'll touch on something even obliquely. Yeah. But um, a lot of times, I mean, they'll, they'll stick to the script. Like, they, there's literally a script, and they will stick to it. So how do the how do the question and answer sessions work? Um, well, they'll call on various journalists from either foreign or domestic media. A lot of the questions aren't especially interesting. But there are, again, there are opportunities, even when delegates are walking in the hallways and stuff like that, that you can – approach them and ask questions. It, so this is like the coming out party once a year that the party does to kind of let you not necessarily peek under the curtain, but have a bit of a chance to engage uh, from a media perspective with these decision makers in the country. Yes, with one important qualification, which is that it's the state, <laughs> not the party per se. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But yeah, look, the MPC serves several functions, and obviously one of them is coordination. Um, you know, we're announcing targets. We're trying to get the various ministries, local officials to be on board. I mean, not that I don't think anything was necessarily a surprise to them at this at this MPC, but coordination, publicizing what they're doing. Um, they like it when the media shows up. Yeah, there's a lot of different functions that this serves. So there are 3,000 or so members. Mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the makeup? How do you get picked? Um, what can I do to increase my chances? Uh, well, that, that occurs at mostly the provincial level and then kind of the senior people will pick which delegation that they want to sort of attend. <laughs> How do you increase your chances? <laughs> I mean... Uh, get resurrected in a uh, in a different body. I, can, think, I, I was going to say, can you like be reborn in China? I mean, that, that's probably the most straightforward way. I, Even Stefan Marbury doesn't get an invite. I mean, look, I hate to break it to you, but these things are pretty selective, and I, I'm just not sure you're up to the cut. My scores, my test scores, man. It's all my test scores. Yeah, I don't think it's going to work. I'm sorry. <laughs> So, so again, so so who actually shows up? It's like 75% male. They're mostly party members. But there are also other um, non-CCP members who, who show up at this thing. Am I yeah, well, again, it's it's a state function. I, I mean, I think the most interesting and diverse array that you're going to get is going to be with the CPBCC, which mm. is the consultative body. Because that is like – that you know, that's a conscious effort to include people who are not – necessarily traditional members of the government or the CCP or whatever. And so that's where you get kind of um, titans of industry who will come in. That's where you get, um, you know, folks like the Jack Miles of the world. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. Like they're going to come in and they're going to make some comments, um, have an opportunity for media to kind of shout questions at them too. Um, so that's kind of where you get the more interesting and diverse bit of that. Yeah, there's also a big push to make sure that the ethnic minorities come wearing their national dress, um, which always mm -hmm. makes the photos coming out of this event more interesting than your standard, you know, 15 older Chinese men all wearing the same suit. Yes. But now with graying hair, graying hair is a thing, apparently. 
Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about it. Mixed feelings about the gray hair. I do. I so I mean back when I started studying China during kind of the Hu Wen era, it was um, it was jet black hair. I mean across the board, like totally dyed. <laughs> and I almost feel a little bit nostalgic for like I, I mean I get the graying is like more authentic, it's more natural. So like your initial reaction and my initial reaction is like this is moving in the right direction. Maybe it is, but I'm sort of wistful for like the days of yeah, when it was it was all just like totally identical. Yeah, those like, poor barbers out there. I mean, this is this we're talking about we're talking about a uh, fiscal stimulus, right? Yeah, we're, I was just, just gonna say like it's going down. It's stimulus to the services sector. Yeah, <laughs> somebody's got to dye that hair. <laughs> so uh, Li Keqiang, who is he, and what role does he play in this? Yeah. Uh, in this week. Yeah, so Li Keqiang's the it's the premier. Um, essentially, and this is a little bit simplifying, but essentially his job is to manage the economy. Um, let's do, let's, let, let's get the, uh, let's get the real version. So what's the, what's the three minute, um, explanation of the premier's, uh, function in the, uh, in the state and the party? Oh yeah. I, I mean, well, he's essentially, he's in the state council, essentially oversees the state council. State council is like the cabinet level body, which oversees in turn the, the various government ministries. What his role is at the NPC is he comes out on you know, the opening of the NPC, and he delivers what's called the government work report, which is basically, here's what we did over the past year, here's our accomplishments, and here's what we want to do over the, the coming year. And that's where he lists, you know, folks like like myself and the media will, uh, I mean, we get the report, but we'll also listen to it, um, just because that's that's where the important economic indicators come out and mm. And, and the targets and stuff. So it's it's a very important speech, and he will deliver it, and then he'll also do um, later on, he'll, he'll do a press conference where you can kind of ask him questions. So, yeah, he has a very important role, but I say that he's basically in charge of the economy because that is, you know, especially in the current political context where you have a leader of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state, Xi Jinping, who's very powerful, the premier's role almost becomes more of like the you know focus on the economy. So like the joke around Xi Jinping, or it's not really a joke. I mean, it's an important it's an important task. But like he it used to be like every time you saw him, like he would come out and he would say, "Here's a new tax cut. We're gonna lower fees and stuff like that." <laughs> and again, it's important. Like if you're a business like that, you pay a lot of attention to that. But it's sort of uh, like you, you kind of like that's his thing. That's what he does. Like it's a it's a shtick and we it's a charm shtick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The yeah. Um, so uh, he's the, uh, yeah. he's the, he's like, he's, he's Santa Claus, right? I mean, this is, it's a, this is yeah. a fun, this is the fun role to play. Well, so it's half fun, I would say, because he he is Santa Claus, and he comes out, and he's, you know, we're gonna have so like this year it was almost three trillion of uh, UN worth of tax cuts. Um, so that's great. That's every, you know, who doesn't like a, a tax cut? Where it's not so fun is when the economy doesn't do well, because then that kind of falls on him. So I think last time we saw this was around 2016, first half of 2016. And there you saw episodes where there would be an article in People's Daily written by an authoritative person. Uh, We don't know who that is. We have some guesses. Essentially, it came out and it said to the effect of, yes, there was a slowdown in 2015, 2016. We got the economy running again, but we did it the wrong way. It's not worth it because uh, you use too much credit to do that. And so it was very hard at the time not to interpret that as sort of a dig at Li Keqiang mm. because if his role is to run the economy 
And now there's this striking article in People's Daily saying that the economy hasn't been run well. Yeah. It's like, you know, less than half a step to say, oh, somebody's somebody's sort of taking aim at, at him. Sure. So um, I think, you know, that was one episode. I think those questions have kind of receded in the background by now. Um, I think he's he's in a much more comfortable position. Um, the economy's obviously slowing, but it's not it's not cratering. But yeah, no, it's it's not all fun. It's not all Santa Claus. It certainly is that role, but not totally. So let, let's talk a little bit about the pageantry. So comparing his speech to a state of the union, what would what would the um, uh, the big differences be? I mean, of course, I don't think there's anyone going out and saying, you know, screaming at him that he's lying, for instance. But um, uh, what, what what else what else uh, about the whole um, about the whole speech strikes out to you aside from the, the the economic policy? Well, let's compare it to the American the state of the union. Obviously, if President Trump or any other of his predecessors comes out and they say the State of the Union, they brag about what they've done, they say what they're planning to do in the future. Um, There's they some crying face, firefighters and hey, ex- yeah, lots, like, lots of good, lots of good prop human beings, which I have mixed feelings about. But anyway, r- right? Yeah, I mean, here's yeah, exactly. Like they've got basically human props there. But you have a big issue if you're the president and you come out and you announce a new like tax cuts. It would be very weird. It would be it would be totally normal for President Trump to say America needs tax cuts. Obviously, we already passed corporate tax cuts. It's unlikely to happen again in the very near future. But you can imagine a scenario where he comes out and he says, you know, economy is doing great, but now we need to cut taxes even more. And what we want is like X amount of taxes cut for like middle class people, hardworking, you know, salt of the earth Americans. We want a little bit even less corporate tax rate or whatever the other, you know, you can make up kind of the package in your mind. Sure. That does not mean it automatically becomes law, right? Like he faces something called Congress that is like going to be really hard, (laughs) probably impossible in the current political environment for him to like, you know, where the Democrats control one chamber of Congress to, to pass something. So it's more like you say that for several reasons. One of them might be to kind of please your constituents, you know, let you, let the base know you're on their side. But like everybody knows that like even if you were to pass some tax cuts, it is going to look probably nothing like the speech that you're giving right now, which yeah. is going to set out like a maximalist position. Yeah. I mean, I remember like the, the 2010 to 2016 Obama State of the Unions were just almost kind of sad for me because like, you know, he comes up with these like cool ideas. We're going to build some trains. We're going to go to the moon, whatever. And it's like, Okay, you just see, you know, a Republican House over there. You're like, like, oh, okay. Yeah, like describing like an alternate universe (laughs) where like that might actually happen. Yeah, but but um, but uh, but it's Kuchong's. You know, these are these are speech acts, right? Oh yeah, this is the announcement. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's going to be any issue whatsoever pushing tax cuts. I mean, the only issues, the pushbacks, and the questions that you would get around that have been decided long ago in conversations with the finance ministry. Maybe the People's Bank of China, a few other ministries. Um, so it's settled. It's it's gonna you know go through, barring some extreme event or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it just takes on a different, a very different role when you're coming out there rather than saying my intent is to do this, saying this is what we are gonna do. Sure. Not to say, I mean, there's still questions like we have questions about like when uh you know when exactly will the tax cuts come and stuff like that, but like. 
are they coming? Like, I, I don't think anybody yeah. would seriously question that. Yeah, it's more, it's more, I guess, the analogy of like a like a CEO's annual address of like, oh, here, look at all our new products or whatever. It's like, you know, the factories are turning. They're gonna they're gonna come out with this stuff. Yeah, like you give investors guidance on what to expect, and like most people would, again, barring like a recession or something like that, most people would say, okay, yeah, probably gonna hit it, or they'll give a profit warning if they're not going to, or something like that. So growth target, we had some news around that. So what is the growth target? How has it changed over time? Jump, jump in wherever you, wherever you. Please. Oh man, <laughs> growth target. Okay, so where to start? I mean, this is announced pretty much. It is announced every year. Last year was quote unquote around six point five percent. Okay, this is to, to be clear. This is the um, the state saying we expect the economy to grow at X percent GDP. Yeah, yeah, okay. essentially. And I mean, it, it sends the message to everybody that you've got to you've got to chip in to basically make that happen. Sure. So around six point five percent. And if you want to, and if you want to get a raise, then you should probably be hitting seven. Uh, <laughs> right. Or <laughs> yes, <laughs> you should ideally. Uh, I mean, or at least inflation. You know, keep it keep it in line with inflation of about two to three percent. Okay. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, no. So uh, it was around six point five percent last year. So the now, Chinese for around. Um, I believe they used Zuo for the kind of around uh, figure, and they lowered that this year to a range. So we have a range of six to six point five percent is the new target. So now you only get you get fired for five point seven five, but if you hit at six, you know you're still you, you're still <laughs> Dude, doing okay. you're still you're still treading water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's an interesting debate. I mean, not to go on a tangent about this, but please, please. There's a lot of talk about is there some sort of implicit even within that range is there an implicit real kind of like um, 6.4 you know dcm like the the bottom line like you got to hit it <laughs> I, I don't th- i honestly don't think it's 6.4 you could argue so they do have a target of doubling i think it's per capita gdp from 2010 to 2020 and if you just do the math based on like how much they've increased so far and how much they have to go around 6.2 it so that's one possibility uh-huh. based on the employment numbers because they also uh, – there's a whole other kind of subtopic of like the employment. Um, basically, the long story short is everybody knows we need to move away from the growth target. They've been reluctant to do that for a lot of reasons. But one of the ways they could move away from it in theory is say, okay, we're going to do an employment target instead. Mm-hmm. Because what we really care about is, you know, improving people's lives and maybe, you know, maintaining social stability at a certain level. So we don't necessarily need to boost GDP to do that. That's kind of an an ends to – it's kind of a means to an end sure. of like, you know, maintaining full employment and making sure people's, you know, livelihoods are, are increasing and stuff. So – um, there had been this thinking that we're going to move toward the employment target. And we get language like, you know, an employment first policy and so forth. But the issue is that then you have estimates too of what – Yeah, you get what you measure, right? All of a sudden, there are going to be a lot more dead people in China. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a, employment is a very tricky thing. You know, part-time, full-time, I mean, this is, this is something that Democrats and Republicans have been arguing oh, about for, yeah. for decades. And I'm sure, um, you know, if you want to fudge – employment uh, there's you know there's been there's definitely been ways to flood gdp and I, it's been fascinating watching provinces um you know revise their numbers um kind of admitting hmm. past mistakes so that they can grow from a lower base um i'm sure there are you know the games 
have been played to a certain extent when it comes to employment numbers. But if this is the thing, but if, if this turns into the number, you know, you get what you uh, you get what you measure, right? So it would yeah. be fascinating seeing just how what what the ripple effects of of going to an employment target would would well, mean for the economy. Well, so here I'll advance kind of my personal theory. Sure. And you know, full disclosure, you know, I I don't know exactly if this would work, but I this is why you are not a member of the NPC. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I suspect what would happen if you did seriously try to enforce an employment number is that how do you kind of hit that number if you're like a local official? Like forget about manipulating it. Like let's say you genuinely want to hit it. Sure. One thing you might do is you might call on, you know, economists, think tankers and so forth and just say, well, what level of GDP growth do I need to have? And so like for each extra percentage point of GDP, how many jobs does that create? Sure. And there are estimates out there of like you know, basically how much – what GDP number you need to hit to get that. Sure. And I've seen some estimates that are I believe around like 6-1. So it, the question then becomes if you do adopt this employment first policy and you say, OK, we need 11 million new jobs created this year or 12 million or whatever it is, can the provincial officials not just, then just do a bit of math and say to themselves, OK, I don't know exactly how to hit that. But the wonks tell me if I juice the economy by about six two, six three this year, or let's say anywhere from six one to six three, I'm gonna hit it. Then just does it just become like a shadow GDP target? You know what I mean? Like yeah, I mean I I actually would 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 disagree with you. And putting on my uh, provincial um, mayor hat here, Go I feel it. like there are much more straightforward ways to increase employment than kind of growing the economy. Just I mean there there are a lot of steps that you go from having a GDP number to an mm. employment rate, and you can have high GDP, you know, high GDP growth and high unemployment too. So you know I would imagine more direct ways, whether that's you know, public works or state employment or uh, pressuring companies more aggressively than you have been otherwise not to fire people. There are lots of kind of more direct levers that you can pull as opposed to just trying to be a good uh, provincial governor and and grow at a healthy, sustainable way. Well, so here's, okay, I get where you're going with that. Then it becomes a question of how do you get away? So like, let's say you wanted to just, you're not going to hit that target for this year of whatever million jobs in your district or something like that. Yeah. So maybe you go on a government hiring spree to just, yeah, basically create a bunch of new posts and like hire people. That's going to have some pretty immediate impact. Like you got to pay the people and also it shows up like, like if somebody is kind of like watching your province and like figuring out if you should get a promotion, it's pretty easy to like see like, okay, your payroll's expanded. Now, w- one step further, you could do what governments essentially have done, local governments have done with growth, which is you could set up a company, inject it with some land or whatever that is off the balance sheet and starts hiring people. So that's essentially what they did to boost GDP growth, which is you set up something called a local government financing vehicle. And you kind of like everybody knows, like maybe you own it, but maybe you don't. But either way, it's kind of clear that you stand behind that debt. And there's a lot of kind of wink winks going on when the banks lend to them, or they go to bond markets and so forth. And then they borrow a bunch of money, start spending on whatever infrastructure, and then they boost growth that way. So you'd essentially have to do that with employment, right? So like you're no longer being like, okay, I'm going to set up a company and it's going to like do a bunch of public welfare schemes. It's I'm going to set up a company and it's just going to like hire a bunch of people. So I don't know, like 
you're still sort of back in the same trap of like we're we're kind of like we're 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 like fidgeting two... with the we're we're fidgeting in the market in ways that are inefficient and yeah. are not and are ultimately wasting money. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost like two sides of the same coin. It's at a certain point like the employment and GDP, like the same way you game it, so forth. So I just spent two years in a master's program in China studies, and all I got out of it was some mediocre Mandarin and badminton skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master's in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongwanzhen. Study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. And for all those China nerds out there, which is presumably all of you, this program has a special focus on China with four native-level Mandarin-speaking professors who focus on China's political economy and tech scene. Plus, for those non-U.S. students out there, as this program is designated STEM, you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa to keep working in America after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu jordan. And if you want to sponsor an episode of China Econ Talk, reach out. We're open for business and Beijing rent is not cheap. So we, so we both read this book called The State Strikes Back, uh, written by Nick Lardy of the Peterson Institute. You know, it, we, we, we just had this discussion about kind of the state's involvement in pushing growth. And one of the big arguments in this book is that actually, you know, the state-owned sector is a real huge uh, weight on GDP and employment and, and efficiency. And, and as he argues, kind of the major thing holding the Chinese, uh, Chinese economy back. So I'm curious for your take on it or whether or not you um, uh, agree with the, uh, the, line, the line he's pushing. Yeah, no, I read the book. I thought it was an excellent book, and I was I was persuaded by the analysis. I mean, I think he does a really good job of short. Based, by the way, uh, yes, yeah, like a cool like 150 pages, which I, I totally approve of. I, I don't like overridden books, and yeah. this was this was not one of those. Which you um, which you certainly see in the China universe. Yeah, um, yes, definitely. Know. That's definitely true. Without naming names or anything, I think it's definitely true. Yeah. So I mean, his argument. Uh, I think it was. Persuasive, he does a great job of showing that state-owned enterprises, I mean, for all the talk that there was, especially right after the financial crisis, that like, oh, state capitalism is the way of the future. Um, I, I think he pretty persuasively shows that they're just not as good as private firms that at just making money with the inputs that they have um, at, at kind of like a core basic level. And I think for those of us who either live or have lived here, I think that's that's pretty intuitive when you have friends that work at some of the SOEs and so forth, and they tell you about their experiences. Yeah, um, I mean, the uh, he had a he had a chart uh, showing nearly similar return on assets um, around 2005, but today you're looking at a 10% gap on what uh, your marginal investment in uh, SOEs versus the private sector can give you, which is pretty enormous when you think about just how big the SOE uh, sector is. Yeah, um, which is what like 30, 30, 40% of the economy. Uh, I think. I'll I'll have to look at the figures. I'm not really okay. sure, but it's it's. I mean, there's there's 150,000 SOEs, depending on how you define them. It, there's a lot. It's it's a it's an enormous amount. And you think about many areas of the economy. So telecoms, you've got the big three carriers, all state owned. Energy, big three oil and gas companies, state owned. The banking system, they made slight progress there, but it's still essentially state owned. Like the, the commanding heights of large swathes of the economy are still held by the state and state-owned enterprises. Sure. So on the one hand, you know, this is a this is a big opportunity. This is this is this is easy growth. 
Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's right? the optimistic. <laughs> yeah. No, he says in his book, and it's it's optimistic, and I, I completely agree that if the implication of that is if they decide that they want to embark more aggressively on state-owned enterprise reform, specifically, you know, something basically privatizing them, that there still is a lot of room for them to continue growth, like fast growth. I think he puts it at around 8% or so for like maybe like two decades to come. Yeah. And that's based on kind of the experience of other what some have called kind of East Asian development states. So, you know, your Taiwans, your Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, if they decide to go down that road, a lot of great things could come from that. But, you know, I think... So so why was this not what Lee Kachong was saying uh, last yeah, week? Yeah, yeah. Well, now that's where the rubber hits the road of, like, will they go down that path? So... One thing that I wrote in, I did a book review of it. Um, again, I mean, very much like the book. Um, and one thing I kind of noted toward the end was his argument that, as he puts it, you know, the state strikes back is not necessarily new to anyone who's lived in China since, especially since the financial crisis. So around the time, I remember, of the financial crisis, and they launched a 4 trillion yuan stimulus. I believe that was 2008, September, maybe November. Mm. Um, and they launched a stimulus. And shortly after that, you start to get all these sort of whispers in the business community. And after a while, it's probably not even fair to call them whispers. It was like an open secret. Mm -hmm. And basically, it was um, this phrase, which means like the state advances and the private sector retreats. And um, it was always terrible hard. movie title. <laughs> yes, okay. it's, it would. It's not. It's not necessarily the catchiest thing in the world in English. Um, but uh, so it was. It was kind of put it this way. By the time I mean I was in Beijing in 2013, um, 2012, 2013, and it was. I mean, you you couldn't like have a conversation without somebody kind of using that phrase. And the implication was that, like, this period of reform might have might have ended and we're seeing something new. And, uh, you know, Lardy's previous book of uh, Markets Over Mao made the case that essentially that, you know, the private sector was in pretty good shape. Uh, I mean, his it's a little bit unfair comparison because he, he kind of looks at since the start of of uh, the reform and opening process. But but basically looking at the initial data that he had on lending to the state versus the private sector, it showed that the private sector was doing all right. And then it went into reverse, and like a pretty sharp reverse, like a very sharp reverse. Mm. Um, and so we started to see lending go more towards state companies. And so the question that I kind of raised in my review was, I think Lardy's work is is amazing in terms of like the data analysis, but it does raise a question of like the data are inherently kind of backward looking. And I am kind of curious about what those people that were so relentlessly saying the state is advancing, the state is advancing around starting after the global financial crisis, but especially around 2012, 2013, like what exactly did they see that was only later going to become reflected in the data? Was it I mean, it was probably something just as simple as like, you know, the stimulus disproportionately goes to state firms and they can kind of see that. Mm -hmm. Or it might have been something a little bit different, maybe like some sort of political sixth sense, if you will, that like, oh, the state companies, like they're, they're a little bit more aggressive maybe in the past. Maybe they saw some signals from the top or something. I'm not really sure what it is, but that's almost 
as interesting as what the data says. If you can say now that the data clearly show that the state really did strike back, it raises the question of the people who kind of sense that at the very earliest moment, like how did they sense it? Yeah. And I, I don't really know the answer to that question. You know, it's funny because there's so much coverage now, um, you know, and I think uh, on the show, on other shows in the in the Western media of the Chinese tech sector. Uh, right. And it's this uh, it's this sexy thing. There are these new companies. They have new phones. There's crazy politics with Huawei and whatnot. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, when you're looking at the Chinese economy, this is not what is driving GDP growth. Um, you know, he writes that the handful of listed Internet and high tech companies, although wildly successful based on their market valuations, account for a minuscule proportion of private firms and very in a very small share of Chinese GDP. While private firms have been able to raise increasing funds through PE, VC, and angel investors, these funding sources remain relatively small compared to the magnitude of bank loans. For instance, he cites that in 2017, the combination of PE, VC, and angel investors were around 500 billion RMV compared to new lending by financial institutions plus local government bond issues issuance, which totaled up to a cool 20 trillion RMB. Um, and even and financial has barely $100 billion in loans. So at the end of the day, you know, we should really be reading newsletters about what's going on in the state-owned sector if we if we actually want to, you know, pick up on these on these sorts of whispers that are actually going to make real Im- impacts from a from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, this is such a big topic and there's so much noise around it and there's so much to look at. I think it's important to kind of have an ear to the ground, of course, and kind of hear those whispers, especially kind of with regard to the state sector, because it is so important. Um, And, you know, from a policy dimension, too, it is fascinating to watch. Um, I think it was Barry Naughton had a good dissection of, like, what happened with SOE reform. Because if you remember the third plenum of 2013, huge deal. It was, you know, uh, shortly after she had come to power and it was this bold new kind of reform vision, or at least it seemed to be. And part of that seemed to imply, again, I say emphasis on seemed because it was it was always like a little bit vague, but it seemed to imply that maybe China would kind of move more towards this model where the state basically lets state-owned enterprises kind of like do their own thing and maximize profit and it's not going to be quite as hands-on and we're just going to have kind of a passive financial stake or even better yet, I mean, maybe we could sell it or, you know, privatize it and then, you know, just tax it like any other part of the economy. And he does a great breakdown of basically how that entire process played out, how it went into various stages of planning and then it got subverted by you know the state state owned state owned assets bureaucracy essentially mm-hmm. um, and so this is the kind of stuff that it's hard to make sort of a snappy article out of it but it's super super important for just like understanding how this policy works and this bureaucracy works especially one that's as you know not as as transparent, let's say, as as in the West. So it's something that, you know, I, I feel like I want to spend more time really kind of delving into. And I think it's one that's super, yeah, just incredibly important. Sure. Let's close with the trade war. So where are we? Oh, boy. Um, March, uh, what is it? March 
So March 8th, uh, 20, 2019. So where are we right now? Trump's come back from Vietnam, this weird North Korea thing that never happened. Yeah. Um, and we it sort of seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Is Trump about to give away the house? Where um, what's your um, uh, what's your uh, what's your what's your hot take, Chris? Oh, my gosh. Um, this is a topic that has a million hot takes and I've written on it a million times. The short answer is I don't really know. Yeah. Um, and. I don't think anybody else knows outside of the administration. I don't think anyone even, even yeah, in the administration. Say, even in the administration, it seems like nobody really knows. I mean, the running bet right now is that there's some sort of Trump Xi meeting, maybe at the end of March, and that they kind of come to a deal that involves a lot more Chinese purchases of U.S. goods. It involves something, something intellectual property, something, something UN, something, something, you know, subsidies. Um, and that there's some sort of enforcement mechanism where the tariffs would snap back if that doesn't happen. Will that actually pan out? I mean, it certainly seems likely. It's, it certainly seems like the, the narrative, and I, I don't doubt that this is true, is that Trump sort of decided at a certain point that he wanted a deal or at least he wanted progress. We had the truce announced in Buenos Aires and I think it was December 1st. They've been talking. They've been making some progress. Maybe there was that unbelievable White House uh, Oval Office moment where Lighthizer tells Trump, uh, you know, we, we have a memorandum of understanding. Uh, Trump oh says, gosh. Trump yeah. says, I don't like memorandums of understanding. Like, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good idea. Lighthizer tries to explain to him, like, no, this is actually a document that matters. It's not just like our, you know, our like journal before we go to bed. Uh, Trump says, I really don't like it. Uh, Lioja laughs audibly into the microphones um, and then controls himself. But uh, but yeah, no, it seems like we're we're, we're trending in a in a positive direction. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it does seem like we're getting closer to some sort of deal as to you know whether it's who who got the better end of the deal. Well, I mean, I, I'd have to say it's the United States because China's just by definition a, a status quo player that did not want this to even start, right? So sure. like, like they probably would not be making some of these concessions if not for like the trade conflict. Um, but I think we'll have to see kind of what the deal amounts to. I think I will say if I have like a hot take, it's mm-hmm. – um, well, I mean there's lots of different things to delve into like you know, questions about can, can China actually like commit to major purchases of say LNG or soy or, or whatever. But – um, so there's there's little things that you can ask about that. But I think that the overall narrative is going to shift once the deal is done to can this stick? So that's A, uh, because I think that there's a non-negligible chance that something might be agreed and then it would just break down even very shortly afterwards. Yeah. So I think it becomes then a question of like will it stick? I also think so. What's, what's interesting is it, let's let's first go to the what it stick question. So, I presumably it fall it falls apart because Trump gets hammered, um, and he said he he doesn't like the deal after all. I feel like that's that's the most most um, reasonable arc. Um, but then again, you know, he has like this like I want to fight with Democrats thing, and if the Democrats are saying it's a bad deal, then maybe it becomes a partisan issue whether or not um, the deal is good. Well, so that's actually going to tie into my second point, which uh-huh. is I've said been on record since almost the beginning of of this conflict that this is, for those of us who follow China, this was a long time coming, a long time coming. And it way predates Trump, a lot of the issues with trade. Sure. And it'll probably, almost certainly, it'll definitely outlast this trade 
conflict. I mean, we're already seeing that with Huawei, right? Like if there's a deal on trade, it doesn't mean anything about Huawei necessarily or like the U.S. government's reservations about Chinese telecom equipment providers and 5G. Sure. Um, and it'll it'll outlast probably the Trump administration. And I say that because there seems to be a bipartisan consensus now that we need to get tougher on China. And I, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's wrong or anything like that. It's just it is remarkable how much the center of gravity on this issue has shifted over the past five to ten years. Like, I mean, just like jaw-dropping shift in favor of a much more hawkish direction. Sure. So, yeah, you come to a trade deal or whatever. Do then things just sort of kind of go back to normal? Like, we're – that ship sailed long, long ago. Like, we're in this for the next – I mean, not to be pessimistic, but like, you know, five years at least. Until – yeah, I just I just don't know some of the, some of the issues that surround the relationship go into like deep trust issues, and I just like I, I honestly do not know how they can be resolved. Yeah. like very quickly. Yeah, so um, we'll definitely have plenty more excuses to be following uh, Liang Hui going forward with fun tensions to be discussed. Oh, we never came to meet China twenty twenty five. This was our um uh, our other our other news oh, item yeah. to come out of it. So yeah. so it's gone. It disappeared. Um, we're we're trying to make Trump happy. What what um uh, rest in peace. We're, yeah, we're given, <laughs> we got a priest in here. I gotta I gotta it. get out. You know, I had my tattoo. I gotta I gotta find a removal oh, man. process. Man, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to invest in some tattoo alterations. Or something. <laughs> yeah, no, we got a we got a priest in here. Did some last rites. I mean, it was great. But so is it is it dead? Um, yeah, probably like the public facing part of it. Like, are they gonna t- keep talking about Maine China 2025 like they once did? Like. It seems very clear at this point that they're not going to. The question then becomes, well, does it live on kind of in substance? Yeah. And that gets into like the tricky question of like what even was made in China 2025? Because I get the sense like talking with a lot of folks in the U.S., U.S. political types who don't necessarily know a lot about China or China's economy. They, they, they somehow like – it's like made in China 2025 has morphed from a discrete – like planned document, something that was concocted originally by MIT. To China taking like, over the world. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, like it's become like almost a symbol, right, of like bad stuff China does to subsidize like sort of high techie areas. Yeah. So one of the I things- mean, it's, it's, it's funny because when you see something like this like bubble up into senators and congressmen talking about it, like that's – yeah, that's what you get yeah. basically. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like they don't know the detail. Like yeah. if you were to ask them like name one area covered in China. I, like I, I don't even know if they could name like a single area. So uh, – but here's here's something that I've touched a lot on. Like it gets into the question of like A, did it work? So like I I actually agree with sort of Lojiwe's comments. Former that, finance like, minister. For, former finance minister that like it was like a lot of talk and a lot of – coordination but like as far as like stuff that you can concretely point to and be like whoa like that wasn't a thing before and then made in china 2025 came along and now they just like dominate like the you know semiconductor like the chips industry like they're just owning it like at the very frontier of technology like you can't you can't really do that like there's not really a lot of areas that they really leapfrog so it just gets into the question of like almost like a basic development economics of like does industrial policy work? But like especially like this type of industrial policy that they're doing, like is it just like we're going to 
put some money in some high-tech stuff and like kind of hope it works? Or was it like this super crafty secret plan to like take over the world? Like, yeah. like I, I get I get the sense from looking at a lot of the data, from talking to people in various industries that are affected by it, that it was much more just like wall of money coming in, well, especially, I mean, yeah, especially some sectors. For instance? Like, well, so like even beyond Main China 2025, like the semiconductor industry is one that China has been trying to come to the fore for like years. We're talking decades. There's there's a lot of really good analytical work that's been done on it. Not everybody agrees. But I think it's safe to say like in general, they are – they have not made a huge progress over the past year. In some areas, it's debatable whether they've made like really any catch-up progress at all. Like toward the tech – not just in like can we produce like a lot of chips but like are we actually at the cutting edge of like technology. And you could point to like some areas like Huawei's um, uh, chip design unit, high silicon, like super impressive, genuinely. But like other areas like like manufacturing the actual chips, not really that impressive yeah. like at all. Yeah. And at, the, um, and at the end of the day, the long term, you know, we talk about all this IP stealing or whatever, but at the end of the day, what really matters is being able to be on the cutting edge. Um, and, you know, even if your stuff gets stolen and maybe you can figure out how to manufacture it three years later, like, okay, fine. Like I'm already, um, my, my country's companies are already onto the next big thing and we're yeah. all, we're already beating you on, uh, on uh, on quality and and prices that are reasonable. Yes. So so this is this is the big strategic question in the next 10 20 years is like to what extent will the Chinese technology sector be able to be on the cutting edge and stay on the cutting edge in a way that's domestically grown and fostered. And this was the whole idea of China, made in China 2025 is to spend a ton of money, bring in, you know, these like thousand talents from around the world and and get Chinese firms to that place right on the frontier. And I guess your your sense is, you know, maybe a little bit, probably wasn't counterproductive, maybe we just wasted a lot of money. Um, but what was interesting was uh, Lo Jiwei in this interview, he said, look, this is the sort of thing, you know, this isn't like we're going to build a lot of steel factories and uh, be able to like to subsidize the cost of, uh, you know, solar panels or whatever. Like this is this is something that requires 22 year olds at Tsinghua living their whole lives and being great AI researchers. And, and you know, this is a more this is a much more organic yes. thing that develops over time. And and to kind of rush it as a classic state run development program is maybe not counterproductive, but sort of beside the point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, well, that's, that's like Loji Wei in a nutshell. Yeah. Like, he, I mean, is he right? I, I would tend to say, yeah, he was. And like, I would even go on a limb and say like a lot of, maybe even most professional economists would probably say that like, he's sort of like got like a pretty good point. Yeah. But do, does he make a lot of friends by like saying that in public among the government bureaucracy? Like, does that advance his career? Like, I, I'm I'm a little bit less... Yeah, I'll be persuaded by that. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting question. Like to what extent does does government subsidy of this stuff really make a difference? You know, you look back to the US in the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, you know, you listen to like the Ezra Klein podcast, like every second week there's someone talking about how um, you know, the government spending and government research is something that's really important when um, you know, trying to foster innovation. So so it's not a crazy it's not a crazy kind of like no, status backwards idea yeah. um that that spending money in um, in emerging industries and on emerging technologies of 
like the, the state spending money on emerging industries and emerging technologies is is necessarily a waste of money. No, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I didn't mean to imply like most scientists or economists would say that like, you know, spending on basic research or like it, that in theory – you might be able to do more good than harm by doing a bit of, you know, industrial policy at the margins or something. But then the question becomes, well, like, was China doing that? And, like, by all accounts, like, I mean, a lot of the industrial policy they do is just not – I mean, it is not like a bunch of techies sitting in a room being like, okay, we're going we're gonna to pick which firms to back, like, VC style, and we're going to be ruthless about it. This is much more this like the not, government. This is not Bell Labs we're talking about. No, no, no. Like, this is, this is a system. This is what I mean by, like, the, you know, most people probably say made in China 2025. I mean, what it ends <laughs> like, up meaning is that that provincial mayor we are talking about making the factory and calling it, you know, a biotech AR lab. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like this is the question for um, something specifically called government guidance funds. And a lot of them are at the local level. And like, I mean, truly just shot through with like perverse incentives <laughs> and like genuinely like it is just such an open question about whether this stuff does any good like whatsoever. Yeah. Shout out to the to the Gansu province. Um, we love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like synthetic <laughs> oil we're, production. We're delivering some hard truths <laughs> here, but but we do love you. Don't yeah, worry. I can't wait for the, the next impossible foods or whatever to come out of uh, <laughs> come out of Inner Mongolia. Um, again, we love you guys. Uh, please keep sending us your free um, uh, free synthetic meats. Um <laughs> I guess we I guess we ended here. Chris, uh, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices podcast, and of course, the Seneca podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Yeoman, 别忘的星星, 要演的星星, 时尚的经营,